Hello and welcome to the Language Revolution podcast. My name is Kate Hamilton. I'm a languages teacher and founder of Babel Babies. The aim of this podcast is to get people talking about talking. So without further ado, let's get started. Sometimes there's a feeling that British people are terrible at learning languages and always have been, so there's nothing we can do about it now. We all know the embarrassing caricature of the English tourist abroad. But how true is this stereotype? Does it have any historical grounding? To help me explore this question, I'm delighted to welcome Dr John Gallagher to the podcast. John is a history lecturer at the University of Leeds with a particular interest in language education in the early modern period. Hello, John. Thank you for joining me. Kate, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell me, John, how did you get into studying language education as a historian? Have you always been interested in languages? I have always been interested in languages and I've been lucky that I've always had other languages, uh, languages other than English around me. So I grew up in Dublin um, and I was educated through Irish uh, until I was uh, 11 or 12 years old, meaning that I grew up both with English and Irish, which was just um, such a privilege. It meant that I kind of grew up with those two languages and maybe got me thinking um, about questions of language quite early on, uh, that I went to secondary school, I studied French and German, and I suppose at some point I realised that this was something I, I really loved. And when I went to university, uh, I chose to study history, uh, which was and uh, remains kind of a great passion, a great interest of mine, um, but I didn't want to leave languages behind, so I studied French as well. And when it came time to write a dissertation um, in my final year, uh, I decided to cheat a little bit, which is I wanted to write a history dissertation, but I wasn't ready to give up the French side. So I decided that I would write a history dissertation um, that was about the history of translation. Uh, and in doing that, uh, I came across a 16th century translator, a chap called John Florio. Um, I had a great time writing about him as a translator. Then I wanted to go further. So I did a master's degree where I studied him as a language teacher and went on and did a PhD where I studied language teaching and language learning in 16th and 17th century England. Um, and that's kind of what got me to where I am today. That's great. So what is the early modern period exactly? Why is this a particularly interesting period to study language education? So it's a great question. The early modern period, roughly, um, is the period from around the middle of the 15th century, so around, say, 1450, um, to around the middle of the 18th century, about 1750. So give or take, we'll say 1450 um, to 1750. And I won't bore people with the years and years of debates about what exactly we mean by early modern. But the reason it's an interesting period for language education, and in particular for studying what I do, which is English speakers learning other languages, is because this is a period before English becomes a global language. Um, this is a period when English is still in many ways a very marginal language. And one of the things I realized as I started to look at these questions was that for English speakers to communicate with people beyond the borders of England, um, they very often had to become language learners. So John Florio, who I mentioned earlier on, he wrote in a book he wrote in 1578, and it's a quote that I begin my book with, um, he said that English is a language that will do you good in England, but past Dover, it's worth nothing. And that's really counterintuitive for us today when we're so used to being speakers of a global language. But I really wanted to get at, you know, how people learn languages. So what they actually did, what the work of language learning was like, who was involved in teaching languages, who was teaching and learning. And, but I also wanted to ask a question about what it meant 
to be competent in another language. Because it struck me, the more that I looked at language learning books, the more that I looked at the manuscripts left behind by language learners themselves, um, it struck me that there was this huge variety in how people were approaching the practice and in what they wanted to get out of it. If you were a merchant, you probably wanted to learn something very different when you were learning Italian, say, to the Italian that might have been uh, learned by an elite woman uh, living in England who would largely not have traveled, say, in the late 16th century. So I wanted to get at that question of how people learn languages, but also what it meant um, to be competent in another language. It's really fascinating, isn't it? So did people have the same expectation of fluency or you know, do they perceive competence in the same way? So there are certainly overlaps in terms of the things early modern people cared about, about linguistic competence and the things we care about. And one thing that I always think about is the question of accent and variety. Uh, so if you take, for instance, French, French is probably the most important um, vernacular second language that English speakers are learning. So Latin is still very important. I don't talk about that too much. I kind of mostly talk about these kind of languages that are spoken in the everyday, what we call vernacular languages. And in French, there's a growing sense across the 17th century. You can already see it at the end of the 16th century. There's a really growing sense that learning French alone isn't enough, that you have to learn the right kind of French, that you have to learn a French that's from the right place and that sounds, you know, that you have the right accent and the right variety. We find teachers at the end of the 16th century boasting that if a learner of French comes into their class, their students are so good at picking up different accents and varieties of French that they can tell where that student's teacher was from. A little bit later, we find people talking about people getting laughed out of the room um, for speaking the wrong kind of French or speaking the wrong kind of accent, not speaking the French of Paris or the French of the Loire Valley, which English people believe is kind of the purest variety of the language. Um, And so that kind of focus on uh, accent and uh, variety, I think, is something that maybe echoes today. I know lots of us, maybe some more adventurous learners, will seek out teachers um, who will speak in a variety of ways and a variety of regional backgrounds. But there's still, and we know this from English language teaching, and that there's still a lot of value placed on kind of received pronunciation or kind of standard American English. So it's really interesting to see some of those things um, playing out in the past. But one of the things that really grabbed me about competence and that I became more and more convinced by as I worked on the topic was that it's really fundamentally about conversation, about speech, and about sociability. And that might seem obvious, but often when you read kind of histories of language in the period that I work on, the 16th and 17th centuries, you often get this real focus on the written, you get this real focus on the grammatical side, and sometimes a real focus on the literary. And it's certainly the case that people did want to learn languages like French or Italian to read great literature. There's no dispute there. But when I started to look at the materials that people were using to read, and then the techniques that they would use to to learn um, while they were at home and while they were traveling, it was clear to me that they were absolutely keen to engage in conversation. So I'd look at the notebooks and the diaries of travelers uh, who went to learn French or Italian, for instance, um, during travel on the continent in an early version of what we uh, come to call the Grand Tour. And I realized that, yes, they were taking down vocabulary. Yes, they were kind of making notes on grammar, but they're also taking down jokes they hear in the streets. They're taking down ballads that they hear in pubs and taverns. They're making notes on the conversations that they have, and they're trying to keep an ear out for differences in language from place to place. Um, and 
when you pair that up with the kind of books that they're using, which are really focused on dialogues and on conversational materials, many of which seem to us, you know, strikingly similar uh, to the materials we might learn a language with, it became really clear to me that this was a very sociable, conversational form of language learning, which I found particularly exciting to study. It's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? It reminded me when you said about the proper way of speaking French. I used to live in Paris and I'd learned a lot of French living in Normandy. So (laughs) I kind of got teased by my Parisian friends for having all this, you know, country vocabulary that was not really appropriate in a bank in the middle of Paris. So it's good to know that there's a long history of that. So who was learning language in early modern England? Who were the who were the students? So there is, I've kind of hinted at this a little bit, there is a variety of language learners. And I think this is an important point to make because it's easy to assume that anyone who's bothering to learn, you know, particularly French or Italian, these languages that are associated with uh, you know, with diplomacy, with literature, with cultural contact and cultural exchange, um, and with travel, which is a really expensive thing to do. It's easy to assume that these people are overwhelmingly elite. And it's certainly the case that there is an elite audience for language learning. It is an accomplishment. It's something you want to be able to do. So there are plenty of wealthy people um, paying for teachers, paying for teaching materials and paying for travel in order to learn languages. And, you know, I've had a lot of fun studying some of them. And one person I've uh, gone down the rabbit hole a little bit with is a gentleman from London in the 1570s called uh, John North or Sir John North. Um, And I've been able to use his diary, which he kept in Italian to reconstruct his travels, but also to kind of reconstruct his Italian life in London, the people he met, the ways he practiced his language, the food he ate, the clothes he wore. Um, And that's been really exciting. But that's only really one side of the coin. And it's really clear that there's a much broader scope of people interested in learning foreign languages. I mean, we should think, first of all, uh, about gender. So this is not just men learning foreign languages. It's increasingly important for women, particularly elite women, um, to be able to to show competence in other languages. So we see, for instance, in the Restoration, so the period after 1660, we see this real flourishing in London of schools, mostly boarding schools, often run by immigrant French women themselves, but where French is the language of instruction or where young ladies can be sent to be educated in the kind of skills that they'll need in their lives. And central among them um, is the skill of French. We've also got kind of famous um, female polyglots. So Elizabeth I is probably the the most famous example uh, as someone who spoke multiple different languages, seems to have really enjoyed practicing her languages with visitors to her court. Uh, And uh, Florio tells us, John Florio tells us um, that she liked to practice her Italian uh, with the musicians she hired. But there's a much broader social background to all of this as well. And in the research that I've done, I've been able to come across servants, for instance, who traveled uh, on the grand tour with their masters and either learnt or became really, really competent in other languages. So people from much more humble backgrounds um, who wound up becoming polyglots themselves. I've come across one fantastic document in the archive of the House of Lords, um, which is from an Irish priest in Spain. And he writes back, he writes a letter home, but he contains, uh, he attaches to his letter um, a document of phrases in English and in Spanish. And there are phrases like, um, you know, please give me some bread, I'm starving, I'm but a poor priest, please give me some alms, that kind of thing. So you get a sense of someone who's using his linguistic skill and kind of creating this bilingual document, but whose financial situation certainly and whose life situation is certainly not that of a kind of comfortable elite traveller. 
And at the same time, you've also got people who are learning languages in order to be part of a much broader set of encounters and exchanges that are characterizing English society at this time. So this is when we're seeing the beginnings of what will later become the British Empire. Uh, it's a period which sees the foundation of the East India Company. It sees the foundation of the Levant Company. And it sees ex expanding British trade, but also growing British presence and kind of colonial outposts uh, in a variety of parts of the world. So if you look at the records, for instance, of something like the East India Company, you'll see that the company is really interested in in hiring people who speak a variety of languages. So for instance, Portuguese or Dutch, uh, both of which are quite useful in the areas in which they're trading, as well as uh, local languages. This is a period which sees a phrase book published in I think 1613, could be 1615, uh, in English and Malay. So there's that trade side of things um, is really important. And merchants, even those trading closer to home in the Mediterranean, um, Italian is really, really useful uh, as a language of trade throughout the Mediterranean. Um, and there are merchants who learn, for instance, Ottoman Turkish uh, as well. So there's people learning languages for commercial reasons, for social reasons, um, for kind of educational accomplishment reasons. And something that I'm trying to get to the bottom of in a new project, I won't get on, uh, into it too much now, but is to kind of think even more broadly than that. So when we look at a place like early modern London, we can see in the records of the city and the records of the city's courts that there's this bustling population of multilingual people. And these might be people in some cases who aren't even themselves literate, but who are speakers in multiple different languages because of their own backgrounds, their family backgrounds or backgrounds of mobility, or their involvement in things like maritime trade, for instance. So multilingualism is much more widespread, I think, and much more socially diverse than our idea of the posh male traveller might suggest. Wow, what a motley crew. So who was teaching all of these different people languages? One of my favourite things doing this project has been um, trying to unpick the life stories of a lot of these different teachers. And, you know, some of these teachers are of English origin. So one of the great writers on French in the 16th century, sir, uh, in the in 16th century, uh, is an Englishman um, at Henry VIII's court, writes an absolutely gigantic uh, grammar of French. But by and large, across the period, we see a really important role, maybe an increasingly important role, being played by teachers of migrant origin. So in many cases, let's take French uh, as an example here. There are various moments in the 16th and 17th centuries. So there are the French wars of religion uh, in the later 16th century, which see a lot of French Protestants fleeing to London. Um, and again, uh, towards the end of the 17th century, uh, the revocation of the Edict of Nantes by Louis XIV sees again large numbers of French Protestants making their way to England. And these migrant and refugee influxes mean that a number of these people who often arrive totally penniless um, make a living as language teachers themselves. Um, so you can kind of trace their, uh, you can trace them through the records and through the books that they publish um, as well. One of the things that I found absolutely fascinating about studying them um, at different, uh, different groups of teachers uh, is that you get a sense of these rivalries between groups. You get a sense of the work that they had to do to establish themselves and to make their reputation as teachers in often quite a competitive environment. So I've done a lot of work with the books that various teachers published. And in particular, so if you look at the period uh, from about 1650, 1660 onwards, when there's a real craze for learning French, there's a real kind of francophilia um, 
in London in particular, in England, um, and a great interest in learning the French language. Uh, one of the things that you find is that the group of teachers that emerges are incredibly catty. Um, there's a lot of rivalry. There's a lot of, you know, every time someone pr uh, publishes a book, they'll write in their preface why that book is much better than the rubbish books being published um, by their contemporaries. And it's something that really grabbed me, uh, is that you've got this community of teachers who are kind of scrabbling with each other um, to get business, to sell the most books. Um, but they're also engaging. It really did remind me a little bit of um, language learning YouTube, um, where you kind of <laughs> see people getting into these kind of debates and spats and quarrels, and there are response videos, and people are clearly engaged in long-running feuds um, about their methods. And that's the kind of thing that you really see, uh, where people will accuse each other of, oh, you know, the language in his grammar is antiquated. It doesn't reflect up-to-date French. Um, or he makes all of these mistakes, and I've gone and corrected them, so you should really buy uh, you should really buy my book. And um, so, you know, there's all of these interesting teachers who have, uh, as I say, that kind of migrant background. You also, as I mentioned, have, particularly in the later 17th century, more and more women emerging as formal teachers um, of languages. So I've done a lot of work on newspaper ads of the period um, and come across things like uh, a woman who teaches uh, the Italian language from a coffee house uh, in London. So you can go along and find out about her teaching and maybe pay her to teach you. But you also have women running these kind of um, language schools throughout the city and more and more in the newspaper ads of the period, you start to see a more prominent role uh, for women, often migrant women, as language teachers. And did you get people who went to live with the wealthier families as well, who kind of moved in, like we might, you know, hire an au pair or someone to come and look after the children? Is that something that people did? It certainly is. And particularly, um, you might see this outside of a kind of big city environment. So if someone's living in a reasonably isolated country home, particularly wealthy families, you'll often find in family accounts um, that they're hiring or paying for a language master uh, or a French or Italian teacher or a Latin master um, at the same time. So you see this, I think, for instance, um, in uh, take a, a wealthy family. So um, the, the Sydneys, uh, for instance, uh, people might have heard of Philip Sydney, the poet, and Mary Sydney the writer, they have language tutors mentioned uh, in their family accounts. We have others. There's a document that I really love, which I reproduce in the book, which I came across in the work uh, of a great scholar who's written a great essay on this uh, called Jerome de Groot. And it is the notebook of a young Yorkshire woman. She's probably about 10 years old. and Her name is Barbara Slingsby. Um, and it's an exercise book where you can see that her teacher um, has uh, written, has kind of prepared a book for her to do her French translation in. So you can kind of see her childhood hand trying to translate the phrases and, and the text on the page. And that's a case where this is probably happening in a private home. This is probably happening um, with a resident tutor. Um, and so absolutely, you get those kind of domestic environments um, where you have a language tutor present as well. It's fascinating. Thank you. So what is motivating all these people to learn languages? And you've mentioned trade and we've got some education. Were people genuinely motivated by English not being very useful or was there some other some other forces at play, do you think? So there's certainly that question of utility, right? It's useful for communication. It's useful for trade. It's useful for travel. That's absolutely important. But I think you're right that there's a bigger set of motivations for some learners as well. And one of them is this kind of 
bigger question of cultural prestige, because as well as the kind of marginality of English as a language in the later 16th century, and you know, I'm conscious that people might be saying, well, hang on, isn't that the English of Shakespeare and the English of Spencer? You know, I, how can you possibly say, you know, this is a golden age? How can you possibly say that it was a kind of a moment of linguistic marginality? And what I would say is that, you know, writers at the time were incredibly conscious of the marginality of English. So someone like Edmund Spencer, who we think of as one of the great poets in the English language, wrote to a friend of his in the 1580s, why in God's name may not we, as else the Greeks, have the kingdom of our own language? And there's, when you read texts on language from the 16th century, they are absolutely suffused with this anxiety about the status of English, particularly by comparison, you know, definitely by comparison with Latin and Greek, but really by comparison with their contemporary rivals. And that's how they're seen, contemporary rivals, right? So uh, by which I mean French and Italian. There's a sense that Italian and French, both of which are seen as being more prestigious languages, are seen as having a kind of more established literary canon. And so people in England, Italian learners, are looking at the work of writers like Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio, one of the earliest books that's published in English um, for learners of Italian by William Thomas, a really interesting figure, explicitly says that this is a book for people who want to read Dante, Petrarch, and Boccaccio, right? So it's really for, for getting at that. But as well as having these kind of literary flowerings um, in in French and Italian that the English are kind of looking jealously at. These are both languages which have had, um, in the period kind of preceding the 16th and 17th century, quite intense and explicit uh, self-conscious language debates. So there have been ongoing discussions in French and in Italian about how to purify the vernacular, about how to make a language um, that best reflects um, a kind of Renaissance nation. Um, if that makes sense. And they're very, very complicated debates, we won't get into them here. But there is a sense in English, maybe that they've dropped the ball, that their language, a kind of Germanic language out on the edge of Europe, which is borrowing lots of words from other languages and seems like a bit of a hodgepodge, that's not yet seen as a strength. That's still seen as um, impure, as a, to use a term that many would use in those days, barbarous. So there is a sense of well, what can we learn from these other vernacular cultures? So there's a real interest, that's a roundabout way of saying, there's a real interest in the cultural prestige and the linguistic prestige um, that comes with learning those other languages. Now there's also you know, um, scholarly interests in particular languages. So we see people like Thomas Harriet uh, showing interest in um, the Algonquin languages um, of the East Coast of North America. Um, so there's kind of growing interest um, in Native American languages in the period, for instance, we see a growing interest across the 17th century um, in Oxford and Cambridge uh, in Arabic uh, and Hebrew. And there's kind of growing interest in these uh, from scholars as well. But for many people, learning a language is, I think, much more of a practical decision because people see either I'll be able to use this during travel, I'll be able to access texts and ideas I want to be able to access, or it will come with a measure of prestige which will help me socially or professionally, are often kind of the, the main reasons there. But if you scratch that surface, I think you're right to say you might find um, a lot more questions of cultural prestige and anxiety around there as well. And that also helps to, you know, people might be thinking, you know, why hasn't he talked very much about, say, German or about Dutch or Scandinavian languages or Russian or Irish, for instance? Um, and that's because those questions of prestige in many cases do dictate the languages that people choose to learn. So, you know, something like French is overtaking Latin as a spoken lingua franca, and you might use that in countries where, you know, your shared language will be French, but 
the, the local language wouldn't be. But it's been interesting to me, you know, in studying this, to see that, you know, where people are learning, for instance, a language like German, um, they're often learning that in more informal or vocational ways. So they're learning that kind of through travel to the country or um, through, you know, engaging in commerce with German merchants or something like that and spending a period living uh, in the German speaking lands rather than kind of going and getting a teacher and following a book in England uh, or something like that. So those other languages are, it's not that they're not being learned, but they certainly don't occupy that kind of central role. And a lot of that has to do with that question of cultural prestige and what's deemed to be a good language to learn, which then as now uh, is a question that's often as much about fashion uh, as about reality. It's absolutely intriguing, isn't it? What motivates people? Thank you for that answer, John. Um, what what was different about learning languages in the early modern period? I mean, you've mentioned that they had grammar books and maybe they, did they have verb tables? Were people still learning how to order two beers? There's, you know, there's a lot of similarities and there's some interesting differences. One of the things that really jumps out at me, in particular, you know, with some of the earlier texts I look at, but really this actually continues. I've been reading, because my life is very exciting, um, I've been reading a lot of Dutch grammars from the late 17th century in the last few days because I'm writing something about them. And one of the things that's really common is that teachers of vernacular languages, so of, you know, French, Dutch, Italian, uh, and so forth, um, find it really, really hard when they write books about, uh, when they write grammars or books about how to learn a language, they find it really hard to get away from the model of Latin as the basis for all language learning. Loads of these texts assume that French or Italian or whatever it is will not be the first other language that you learn. They assume that you'll be a literate man who's some education in Latin already. Um, And what that means is they will often try and impose Latin grammatical structures and ideas on languages that don't have them. So, for instance, you'll read a French grammar or an Italian grammar, um, and they will spend quite a lot of time um, going through how nouns decline. Uh, in French or Italian, which, you know, we use prepositions to do the work that declensions will do. Um, It's a very simplistic way of saying it, but effectively that's what I mean um, in Latin. But instead, they'll kind of do these tables trying to show you how to do that because they know that the model that their readers will already have is learning Latin declensions. So they try and kind of force French or force Italian um, into the same model. Now, that's something that kind of gradually falls away later in the period. Um, there's wonderful work by um, Helena Sansom, who's a uh, professor at Cambridge. Um, and she's done great work on the fact that uh, in the 17th century, you see the emergence of these books, uh, which are advertised as grammars for women. Uh, and what makes them grammars for women is that they don't assume a prior knowledge of Latin. Uh, but one of the things that Helena's work has shown um, is that um, even though they're advertised as being for women, that's not really how they get used. They do get used by women, but they overwhelmingly get used by men as well because people are desperate for some kind of language teaching that doesn't assume that you already have Latin. So these become kind of really popular and useful texts and that kind of falls away. There are a couple of techniques that people would use that might seem a little strange to us. Um, So in the 16th century, and this comes out of the Latin learning tradition as well, um, there's a real interest in a technique called double translation. 
Um, double translation means that you'll take a text. Um, let's say your uh, original text is in Italian. Um, you'll translate that into English. And you'll go away, you'll come back, you'll cover up the Italian, and you'll try and translate the English back into Italian. And so the idea being that it kind of teaches you to translate, but also then to produce text in the language. And that's a really popular method, particularly in the late 16th and early 17th century. There's maybe a little more, people often think, oh, is there loads of learning by rote? Because our assumption tends to be that, you know, rote learning was kind of the basis of so much education uh, before the modern era, which very often isn't really the case. There certainly is the case, you know, with a lot of these uh, conversations and dialogues in textbooks that people were expected to at least learn some of them off and then perform them for their teachers uh, and things like that. But I tend to think, you know, on reading these, that the they do a lot more work than that. You know, these genuinely are, in some cases, they function like phrase books. They really are just lists of very basic phrases. So um, there's you know, popular phrase books that will teach you how to hire a horse, how to get a room at the inn, and how to, as you say, uh, to order a couple of beers. But these are kind of, you know, these dialogues are not just for learning off. They're kind of often quite, I think, ingeniously designed to try and show, for instance, um, the different uh, you know, d different uh, verb forms, for instance, or different tenses or how different prepositions work. So they're really, really interestingly done like that. I think one of the big differences is that this is a period before uh, audio recording. So when you buy a language book and that language book tries to tell you, for instance, how to pronounce the letter U in French, um, you can't press play. You can't Google, you can't kind of look on YouTube and find a helpful teacher um, who will kind of show you how to pronounce it and give you lots of examples. So books for language learners get around this in a whole bunch of different ways. And one of them is that they try and give so they might try and compare the sound of something to something that exists in English or in another language in the hope that you'll then be able to kind of to mimic that. But sometimes they'll give these kind of um, physiological explanations um, of how to pronounce particular words or particular letters. So I've been reading, as I said, a lot of these Dutch grammars. And one of the things that they talk about constantly is TH uh, in English. Um, and it's a sound that 17th century Dutch learners seem to have had real trouble with. And so you get lots of different writers saying things like, okay, put your tongue here, um, pose your mouth like this, issue forth some air, and that is the sound of the TH. So they're trying to use print to explain the sound of the language, which is something I find really fascinating. Um, but they also try and get around it in other ways. And this maybe speaks to a uh, a world where the city maybe was a little bit smaller um, and people maybe uh, lived in uh, closer quarters. Um, there are plenty of my books, uh, you know, these kind of grammars and conversation manuals, which will introduce a point of difficulty and say, you know, and if you're really having problems with this, come and see me in St. Paul's Churchyard uh, and I'll show you. Uh, and I'll teach you how to do it. Uh, so there's a sense of, you know, advertising the teacher's services um, and helping the, uh, you know, telling the reader, look, you can come and see me as well. But for all the differences, I do think there are loads of things that uh, these different approaches have in common. You know, I've come across things like, I think of them as early modern language tandem kind of arrangements uh, where people uh, will arrange, you know, will strike up a friendship with a uh, someone local who's a speaker of what we would call their target language um, and arrange to speak Italian or to speak French with them kind of in a sociable way. And there are lots of teachers who say, you know, if you want to learn French or you want to learn Dutch, you have to really hear the language and learn what it sounds like. So if you live in London, go to the French church or the Dutch church and buy yourself a French. Bible and listen 
uh, to the sermons, listen to the service, and that's a way that you'll be able to practice um, the language as well. So sending people out and trying to get them to immerse themselves um, is maybe much more uh, much more of a big deal as well. That's absolutely fascinating. I can see that there's a bit of the grammar translation method that you know was very popular. Um, well, I don't know for a hundred or so years in the UK, and then there's also quite a lot of the communicative approach that has dominated for forty years as well, where people are actually trying to just speak it and um, almost be immersed in it and pick it up as they go, and not start from the written um, grammar. Uh, manual I suppose. You can actually follow people's progress so as well as looking at the grammar books I look at people's diaries I look at their letters from when they travel that's something that's really interesting because you can sometimes watch people getting better across the months of their period of travel. The other thing that you see which is really interesting is particularly early on where people are learning in that kind of communicative way and they haven't necessarily translated the skills in their spoken language to their written language you can often tell this by the way that they spell things or the way that they put things on the page. So it's quite clear that they know what they're saying, but they'll muck up the spelling because they haven't yet worked out, you know, how that, how to transcribe that or how to write that down correctly. Um, but you really do get a sense of, you know, people's language improving, but also all of the kinds of input. I mentioned earlier on people taking down, you know, jokes and proverbs and ballads and things like that, um, or in many cases, writing their diary in the language that they're learning. So you get a kind of, there is a way of seeing the fruits of that method as well. How can taking a historical perspective on language education help us reflect on how we've arrived at what we might call our current monolingual state of mind and languages crisis in the UK? Yeah, this is a great question. Um, and in the book, I I kind of keep my powder dry until the conclusion. And then I <laughs> spend about a, half a page getting a bit angry about the current situation. Um, I think it's a really, really good question. One thing that I think is helpful to do and I don't know what its practical outcomes would be, but I think it's really useful to reflect on the, the way that the current state of English, um, you know, the role that English plays in the world is a historical peculiarity. It wasn't always the way, and it very much you know, it was not the case um, 400 years ago. So I think in some ways it's kind of inspiring to look at this um, multilingual England to look at kind of the methods and that the hunger uh, for learning and for expression in different languages at the time. I think there's there's a value to that. I also think it's interesting because we often talk about the UK today as you know as a kind of monoglot nation, and I do understand what lies behind that. Um, but of course, that sometimes erases all of the really interesting ways in which, you know, people and communities and families in the UK are multilingual. And it often happens because we focus too much on what we deem prestige or useful languages. And, and we devalue languages that are out there being spoken in the community. And I think that's really, really important um, as well. I think... It's something I think about a lot because uh, as well as being a researcher, I'm also a teacher, um, I'm a, a history lecturer, um, and I've been working with students recently uh, to try and help them boost their language skills because I've realized that we have loads of students who come in who maybe they took a language to GCSE, maybe they took a language to A-level, maybe they speak a language at home where they grew up with a language. Um, and lots of them have, you know, an interest in using another language but don't necessarily know, particularly as historians, how to go about it. Um, so we've been trying to find ways 
of encouraging students and equipping students to, 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 to work on their own language competence and to kind of apply that to their own historical work as well. And that's, that's been really exciting. I think that sometimes we get overly focused on ideas of fluency and perfection and we forget that, you know, there's so much you can do with a small amount of another language. Um, and I think that's really, really important. I get a little bit depressed when I read uh, articles like uh, one I read recently um, in a major publication talking about, you know, with the emergence of kind of machine translation that's so good, is there actually any point in learning another language? Is this kind of effectively uh, wasted labor? And I think that you and I would probably say, well, of course it isn't. Um, but maybe it's to us to kind of, to make the case for why that is and for all of the things that learning another language can do. I mean, I think many of the pronouncements about the languages crisis and about the, the lack of utility of languages tend not to really understand or tend to come from a place of not really understanding what competence in other languages actually can do. Um, and they often think about it as very, maybe a very simple transactional kind of skill or something like that. And obviously it's hugely helpful professionally, um, but it has a variety of other benefits, whether kind of personal, emotional, in terms of kind of opening up uh, whole cultures and worlds to you as well. So I think in terms of taking the historical perspective, something that can help is reminding ourselves that it wasn't always that way. Um, but also maybe reflecting on all of the different ways that language proved useful and important for people in the past um, and that it helped them kind of create relationships and helped them encounter new literature and new ideas. But also, I suppose, and this is the last thing I'll say on it, we should maybe have more perspective on what has happened to English um, over the last 400 years. There's a real tendency to assume that because English is so commonly spoken, that somehow it's neutral. And I think that if we're more attentive, um, and obviously this is the Irishman saying this, but you know, if we're more attentive to the historical circumstances that gave rise to the global position of English today, um, then we could more effectively challenge the idea that English is some kind of wholly transparent language that we all share. And it might give us maybe a clearer sense of the potential tensions or disadvantages that surround our kind of the idea of a kind of monoglot sufficiency, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I am 100% with you on that. And I think English has arrived where it has, you know, become this sort of global um, lingua franca just through a series of accidents, really, hasn't it? And it's not, you know, it wasn't destined to be this language that everybody learned as their second or the most popular foreign language across across the whole globe it is you know phenomenally popular and important but it didn't you know it didn't necessarily have to get there did it it was just sort of a a series a chain of events that led to it 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 makes me think that the early modern period um that was a time of really exciting creativity wasn't it you've mentioned shakespeare already and sydney but it was also a period of standardization of english i've been studying about how you know we started to write the English language down, you know, we've got the famous example of Johnson's Dictionary and, and that sort of thing. So how did the way that English was being standardised, how did that influence the way people thought about foreign languages? Yeah, I think this is such a great question because the 
the history of English is the history of its encounter with all of these other languages. And you see throughout this period, so in the 16th century, that all of these scholars and commentators are really worried about what they see as this avalanche of borrowed words coming in from French and Italian in particular. And this idea that English is kind of being seen by writers in some way as insufficient to express the things that they wanted to express. So they have to pick and choose um, from other languages. I always found this incredibly interesting because today I think it's almost a um, it's almost axiomatic to say that one of the great strengths of English is uh, that it is this you know as people call it a mongrel language right that it's been so open to other influences that it's picked and chosen um, and that it kind of reflects this kind of global linguistic heritage but that's absolutely not the viewpoint that's taken in the 16th 17th or even in much of the 18th century even up to dr johnson um, instead there's this real anxiety that by borrowing people make the analogy with uh, with debt for instance that if you're constantly borrowing uh, you're going to end up bankrupt and there's a real set of worries about kind of the language changing in this way and the late 16th and early 17th century is a really important period for the expansion of the vocabulary of english but that comes with this huge level of anxiety about the encounter with other languages. And this spills over into some attacks on language learners and travelers. Uh, so there's lots of mockery uh, in the late 16th century um, of people who are called uh, Italianate gentlemen. So these are the people who kind of travel over to Italy. And they come back speaking, as one commentator says, Anglazo Italiano, so that they're dropping in little words from their travelers. I always think of them as like returning gap year students. Um, so they're kind of like they're dropping in the words that they've learned. They're wearing Italian fashion. And there's a real sense that these people are corrupting not just English culture, but the English language by their kind of daredevil addition of Italian or French words into the vocabulary. In the later 17th century, there's this attack on the fops, right, on people who are seen as Frenchified, both in their language as well as in kind of their dress uh, and their mannerisms. And so there's all of these kind of worries. And we see into the 18th century, we see it in Jonathan Swift, we see it in Samuel Johnson, that there are these concerns about terms being brought in from other languages and the idea of a kind of um, a dilution um, of the English language itself. So the encounter with other languages, I think, really does frame how people feel about English for a lot of this time. I think the thing that really surprised me, I was kind of used to the idea that the late 16th century, there was a lot of anxiety around this, but realizing that that really continues into the late 17th and 18th century as well, that there isn't kind of a self-conscious sense of oh, English is having English is having a great moment um, in this period, I think is I think is really, really interesting to see. And it's certainly true that, you know, language learning um, and language learners um, are often people who find themselves uh, in the firing line for critics um, in terms of what's going wrong with English uh, in the period. It's absolutely fascinating, isn't it? I, I, I know it's a bit later, but Dr. Johnson had written in an early note, I, don't, I think it was not the preface to the dictionary, but he said he was going to write down all the pronunciation of English as well. And then in the preface to the dictionary, he said, you may as well try and lash the wind as write down English pronunciation because everybody pronounced things very regionally. And I think it's quite interesting because you mentioned how the Dutch grammars tried to link physical ways of pronouncing things in English because perhaps there wasn't this standard pronunciation of things you couldn't really refer to it could you so 
Well, the other thing I should say on that, and Johnson is a great person to mention here, is that for the English in the later 17th century, one of the things that they really have their eye on, I mentioned earlier on that they're looking at these debates that have been ongoing in, in Italy and France, um, but they really have their eye on the Académie Française, right? So they look at the fact that the French have established an academy uh, for regulating the language, um, you know, create a dictionary, um, and the Italians and the Germans have different organizations that are kind of you know, academies and uh, associations that are working on kind of linguistic purity uh, in a not dissimilar way. The English, I mean, the English are always obsessed with the French, and but they're obsessed with the idea of the Académie Française. They kind of have these ongoing debates about should we do something similar? Should we be trying to get people together to regulate our language and to determine what is English and what isn't, to keep bad words out and to make sure only good words are in? And that's a debate that rolls and rolls. It's a debate that rolls through the early years of the Royal Society, which we associate much more with science. Um, but there's kind of a linguistic undercurrent to writing about the Royal Society um, in the 1660s and 1670s and onwards. And Johnson is really interesting because he compares um, English and French, and he actually is not in favour of the establishment of an academy for English. But for Johnson and for a number of people, the difference between the French approach and the English approach is something more than linguistic. It becomes a way for them to start articulating these ideas that not only are French and English linguistically distinct, but that they each reflect the political cultures that produce them. So increasingly in English writing, and you see this in Johnson, um, the academy approach is seen to reflect a kind of French absolutism, whereas the English approach is seen to reflect a more uh, typically English liberty. Now, of course, these are both national stereotypes, but it becomes really interesting to see in the 18th century how caricatures, for instance, of the Académie Française um, and caricatures of the French language by the English become a way of articulating they're different from us linguistically and politically and kind of help to move towards this idea of English liberty, not just in politics, and but also in language. And maybe that's the beginning of some of the kind of the great myths of the triumph of the English language that will follow later on. So to, just to come back to my opening question, John, where does this idea that the English are rubbish at learning languages come from? Because clearly we weren't rubbish at, in, during the period that you're discussing here. It's a great question. Um, you know, I should point out, you know, uh, it's not the case that absolutely everyone in this period was a brilliant linguist, and there are plenty of sources um, that talk about, you know, people making mistakes or not being able to learn and things like that. And one of the interesting things that you see, so I've looked at a lot of travel records from the 17th and 18th century, and as you get this kind of travel, which we call the Grand Tour, emerging, um, you get more and more Englishmen, young elite Englishmen, following pretty much the same routes, going to pretty much the same places, hanging out in pretty much the same places. Um, and that becomes a problem because they're supposed to be going off to France to learn French, but they arrive somewhere like Blois, for instance, in the Loire Valley, um, and everyone there is English. So the English young men hang out with the other English young men, and there are constant complaints about the fact that they're not actually learning the language at all. So already in some of those kind of 17th and 18th century accounts, you're seeing this frustration um, with you know, the English who aren't bothered or kind of are not actually picking up the language themselves. But I wanted, actually, I think it's really appropriate um, to come back to the 16th century and to John Florio, who I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. So he's an Anglo-Italian uh, translator, lexicographer and teacher. And he, in 1578, is actually tearing his hair out at what he sees as the unwillingness of 
English people to teach languages to their kids um, or to learn languages themselves. He actually says that he'd really like, I can't remember if he calls for them to be beheaded, but he calls for some kind of terrible punishment um, for parents of families, for fathers of families who don't have their kids educated in language. He says, I, you know, I sometimes think this would be a good idea. And he also talks about the shame that attaches to seeing an Englishman in company when he's in company with speakers of other languages and he can't say anything. And he says, you know, it's a shame to his parents. It's heart's grief to think about it. But it's clear that, you know, even in this age of, I think, much more you know, multilingual flexibility and where language learning was much more essential, there is already this undercurrent of an idea that learning other languages is something that is not seen as being an essential English attribute as well. So I wonder if, you know, when you ask me this question, I often think, okay, well, maybe it's towards the end of my period, or maybe it's kind of a little bit later that this idea of the English as rubbish and language learning comes through. But actually, you know, maybe we can see the seeds of it much earlier on. Um, but I think it's such a big question, we could have a whole podcast about it. So I guess I'll leave it there. Thank you very much, John. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Kate.